This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats, Life Beats. with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. Assalamu alaikum, hello Allah, and welcome to Life Beats with me, Sally Musa. Coming up this hour, I'm joined by a very special guest who is a global superstar on several fronts. She's not just an activist amplifying women's voices and driving change for women in leadership. Her experience in some of the world's deadliest war zones has actually given her a unique insight into the vital and often overlooked role that women can play in peacekeeping. In just a moment, I'm joined by author and founder of Across Red Lines, Manal Omar. She'll be sharing her story as one of the world's most influential Arab Muslim women and how she harnesses the power of her multifaceted identity in a divided world. All of that and more is next here on Life Beats on Pulse 95. This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats Life Beats with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. It is Life Beats on Pulse 95 and you're about to meet an extraordinary woman who's been shaping the conversation around women, peace building and interfaith relations globally. Manal Omar is the founder of Across Red Lines dedicated to women's leadership through accessing life force energy and deeper understanding of rights through a faith lens. She's designed and led multiple development and training projects in the Middle East and Africa and provided media and policy support on youth and gender programming worldwide. She has served as the Associate Vice President for the Middle East and Africa Center at the U.S. Institute of Peace under the Obama administration. And her experience includes working as an international advisor for the Libya stabilization team in Benghazi in 2011. And as part of her work with Women for Women International as a regional coordinator for Afghanistan, Iraq, Sudan. And, uh, of course, Omar lived in Baghdad from 2003 to 2005. Manal was named amongst the top 500 world's most influential Arabs by Arabian business in both 2011 and 2012 and has been here in the UAE for the last 15 years. Manal Omar, welcome. Ahlan Fiki to Life Beats. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. So glad to have you. I have to say, when uh, we look at who you are and where you come from, it's quite incredible. You were born in Saudi Arabia to Palestinian parents who traveled through four countries before finally settling in the United States, in the South, <laughs> in Texas and South Carolina, no less. Yep. You are like the walking definition of a global citizen. That's what I try to be, absolutely. And I always tease my parents for, you know, losing that memo that tells immigrants to go to coasts, <laughs> not to the middle and the south. It's incredible. You know, talk to us a bit about growing up Palestinian uh, in the U.S. And, and, and having, you know, such a multifaceted identity. Talk to us about, you know, how your experiences there. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, as a child, I think I, I took a lot for granted. I mean, I loved the fact that we had so many different cultures and exposure. Um, and I saw that, you know, particularly growing up in the South, most people did not have that. So I felt very empowered. I, you know, you know, I felt like in, in my book, I talk about my different identities as being my superpower. I could literally go into any community and relate and understand because when you're exposed to different cultures, you know that there's something much more than the mainstream. So you start to look for the subcultures. Uh, I always felt very proud of my identity. And honestly, it's a different time. I, you know, I grew up pre-9-11, so America was a very different place. It was curious. It was, you know, if anything, there was ignorance, there wasn't hate. And so that's always an opportunity. And I, I think I stepped into that role of um, almost being an ambassador. And what was funny was I wasn't only an ambassador like for the Middle East or for, you know, the Arab world or the Islamic world. Whenever I would come home to the Middle East, I became an ambassador for America. And so I was always explaining America because everyone thought thought it was just Dallas and everyone thought, you know, really very superficial images of America, not understanding its depth, not understanding, you know, the the, the multicultures that America is. And so, you know, I think I stepped into a diplomatic role as a child of just explaining very two very different cultures and just took on the role of bridge builder um, and then happened to make a career out of it. It happens almost by default, doesn't it? When you're an immigrant child, you know, I've had a similar experience in in Australia growing up as an Arab in in Sydney, but it's almost by default, isn't it? You just become the person who kind of represents what they think of as the other, mm-hmm. you know, in in uh, quotation marks, and and they, like you said, pre nine eleven, it was just very much about curiosity and people wanting to understand and get to know, right? Yeah, absolutely. What absolutely. kind of questions did you get from people? I mean, I got like, again, keeping in mind this was a while ago and in South Carolina. I mean, like crazy questions, like, do you ride a camel to school and <laughs> do you live in a tent? And you know, like my uncles would come and visit and they're wearing the dishdasha, and so you know, I'd come to school and people would come running. Like, why are your uncles dressed in, you know, wearing dresses? And it was so fascinating to me to see another perspective because, you know, again, you take things for a given. Um, my mom loves to cook our entire neighborhood. And this is part of what I did love about the South is it is community oriented. You know, once we moved up to the North, you lost a little bit of the sense of community. And so, you know, people were always curious. Like this is before like, you know, pita bread and hummus was a thing. So people were like, did your mom forget to put yeast in the bread when they would see the pita bread? And, you know, all those type of things were was something that like I, I think as a child, um, for some reason, I've heard people who were scarred by it. I feel so lucky that I saw it as an invitation to conversation. And that's how I always took it. Um, mm. You know, I remember like being in a position where I was literally on a desk and lecturing three teachers <laughs> who were like hanging on to my every word because they had never really understood what the Middle East was. And they were just peppering me with questions. And I was like 12. And wow. I loved that moment. And I loved being heard. And I loved being able to share my perspective. And again, I think it's you know, when I look back, it makes, you know, how could I not do what I'm doing? I mean, it started from so early on. It, it just, it makes perfect sense that, you know, it really just shows uh, where you'd be. Uh, there's no surprise at all. But what's interesting about you is, um, you know, there are some who would uh, live that experience and just feel like, you know, the, the identity is a, a difficult thing to define. Mm-hmm. You know, they'd feel like they weren't uh, Western enough. They weren't Arab enough, they weren't Muslim enough or whatever it is. And like you said, some people might feel scarred by it. Why do you think it is that you personally 
felt like that was your superpower. You know, what what's your the difference between your experience and somebody else who might be going, well, I don't even know what my identity is anymore. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think I always, um, first of all, I'll blame my Taurus nature and say I'm one stubborn person. <laughs> And so if anyone tried to tell me who I was or tell me who I wasn't, I would always be like, challenge accepted. Let me show you that I'm <laughs> much more complex and you can take that little label that you've put on me right off my forehead because that's not me. And I think that stubbornness really allowed me to kind of push back and say, stop defining me. Um, and, and even as a young child, like, you know, teachers and probably my mother would tell you I was a nightmare. Like I, I really was, you know, very adamant about not being defined and not being put in a box. Um, I think also what I find funny looking back is I tried on all identities. I mean, I went through a phase where I thought I was black. I went through a Latina phase. And then I it was, you know, told I had to learn Spanish. I was like, <laughs> I'm out. I'm bad with languages. <laughs> I went through a Daisy phase where I thought I was South Asian. And my poor mom's on the you know background being like, you're a Palestinian. <laughs> this shouldn't be confusing. I'm like, doesn't feel right. Doesn't feel right. Let me try this on. And I think really I, I saw identities as something that, you could play with and you can define and you know not to mention my gender you know being a woman was a big part of my identity and what i learned to do was allow it to shift i mean you know there on march 8th you know i'm a woman like it's international women's day you know when it becomes you know the nakba the, the palestinian catastrophe i feel it so deeply on that day so you know i i would say i allow my identities to shift and to represent me in the mood and the feelings that i'm in at the moment and you know this really drives the work that you do in terms of helping other women as well to allow their identity to to, to let that be something uh, that becomes a, a powerful force in their own personal leadership as well. Absolutely, absolutely. I think one of the biggest challenges is we lose our personal power because we're forced to wear so many different masks. And then we forget what is our core, what is our actual essence. You know, I talk about from the Islamic tradition, fitra, you know, what is our fitra? What are we actually born into? And when you put all these ma masks to uh, please the public, you lose that authentic being that is so powerful. Fitra and, is your core, yes. you know, that you're born with before it, any cultural influences Absolutely. or parental influences, any of that is there. And it's like, it stays with you, but it gets covered up, doesn't yeah, it? Absolutely. And this is what a lot of the workshops I do is that it really is that excavation of getting back to that core authentic being. Wow. Wow. We, we have so much to talk about here with Manal Omar. Uh, incredible conversation here all about harnessing our multifaceted uh, identities for our own personal power. There's a, a lot more to come right here on Life Beats on Pulse95. This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats. Life Beats. With Sally Musa. Only on Pulse 95. 95. Yes, we are back with Manal Omar. She is an author and an activist and the founder of Across Red Lines. We're talking about um, identity and particularly in this uh in, in the contemporary world, it's interesting because a lot of us are now, you know, third culture kids. We uh, have been born into one culture. We have moved into another. And th there becomes something that is much deeper and much richer there. And yet, Manal, at the same time, we are often forced to choose between our different identities to simply fit in, mm -hmm. depending on, you know, where we are at any given moment. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's a really hard thing because... 
you know, the need to belong is a basic human need. You know, I put it right up there with food and water and shelter. I mean, it's how we survive as humanity is being belonging to a community. And this is why tribal cultures are so important. So it's not something you can just say, you know, ignore it, be this, be yourself. I mean, those are definitely, you know, crucial messaging. But the reality is we need to belong. It's mm. a human need. And so how do you do that when the mainstream is putting, you know, really strict definitions of what it is? And and for me, you know, like I said, like it's very hard. Like there's a part of me that's Palestinian, but there's an incredibly, you know, strong American in me. And, and you know, I'm often told, well, these two parts should be in conflict and they're not. I've reconciled them. So I think it's really important for people to really do that reconciliation and find out who they are. Uh, and that's what my retreats really go to is it really helps people excavate, helps people identify and not who they think they should be. I always tell people, don't work in this hypothetical, you know, like you don't have to be the perfect Arab, the perfect Muslim in terms of who you should be. It's really just taking that time and figuring out who you are and understanding that that's the most powerful place you can be. Part of your own personal journey was actually uh, going to work in some of uh, the region's uh, deadliest uh, war zones as well, including Iraq and Afghanistan. Talk to us about that, how that came about and, and why, what you learned as well. I think that, um, you know, again, when I think about like my background, um, I, I feel like it makes complete sense that I would end up uh, being there. And I and I, I really do attribute it to my Islamic faith. Um, you know, one of the things that I always took very seriously is, is the concept of amana, of entrustment. And, you know, as a Palestinian who made it to America, I felt like I owed um, the region, the community, uh, you know, something back. You know, I had access to opportunities. I had access to education. I had access to things that, you know, my family and my background didn't have. And so I took that responsibility maybe a little bit too seriously, a little bit too literally. Um, so when I was uh, working at the World Bank and the opportunity for me to go back to Iraq, because initially when I was with the UN, I was in Iraq, um, I felt, you know, really, uh, you know, compelled to go. And I had a wonderful mentor whose name is Zainab Selby, the founder of Women for Women International who was the one who personally recruited me to join and go to Iraq. And I have to say, she changed my life. She opened my eyes, uh, not only to the power of the region, but to the power of us as the women. Uh, and that we're the Rosetta Stone for the peace and the understanding and the growth of the region. And, and that, I think, you know, until now is a message that I continue to carry that I, I learned from her. It's incredible. Uh, talk to us. Zainab is, is a phenomenal uh, role model for, for women all over the world, not just for women, for, for everybody all over the world in terms of amplifying the voices uh, of women. But talk to us about that experience of going to Iraq. You've, of course, uh, written a book mm -hmm. about your experiences as well. What was that like when you arrived there? What were your expectations? Mm -hmm. And what was the reality? Oh, wow. I mean, I think... Um, I, I, you know, I'm a peace builder, so I have to say I'm always very anti-war. And when I arrived in Iraq, and this is true of every country I arrived, um, the layers of complexity surprised me. You know, you didn't have one, you know, black or white response. Uh, you know, I, I actually walked through mass graves in the South. And so when I would go back home, whether it was in America or, you know, within the region and people telling me this is just propaganda, it was very hurtful because, you know, I saw the families that were impacted. Um, likewise, I saw the families that were impacted by, you know, the shock and awe campaign, by, you know, all of these things. So I think that that reality really um, is, is something that I carried very strongly for. Um, but at the same time, what I what I what saddened me the most was what people couldn't see 
which is the resilience, which is the innovation. I think I was telling you before that, you know, there was a day and time when Fallujah just meant really good kebabs to me. And we would drive up there to get those kebabs. And now it means something completely different. Uh, you know, I remember being in Baghdad and, you know, every Friday we would go to Shara al-Mutanabbi, which is an entire street just lined with books and bookshops. And it was, you know, one of the most amazing places. And, you know, in Afghanistan, the food, I had a whole Kabuli dance. I just loved the Kabuli food. And, you know, I remember when I was in Libya and Benghazi, the hospitality of the people, the history in these countries. And, you know, it's really hard to talk about because, you know, there's a lot of people lives being lost. But when you look at the culture and the art and the history and the fact that now, you know, not only as Arabs, but as Muslims, that these tragedies are defining our identity. It breaks my heart. And it's again why I created Across Red Lines, because its focus is on joy and celebration for transformative change. We can't let these tragedies define us. And I think that's particularly true as women. And and I think that was really what I learned from war, is that there's resilience, there's innovation. I've never laughed and and really enjoyed as much as when I was in Baghdad or Kabul or these things because you learn the value of the minute. You understand that there may no be no tomorrow and so you really maximize it. And and I'm very privileged to have worked with people that taught me that lesson because in America, I don't think I would have ever, ever appreciated and had so much gratitude for the basics the way I do now. That's incredible. Uh, and of course, uh, you wrote the book, uh, after that and, and, and something uh, we'll get to the book in just a moment but I, I want to ask you about um, the women particularly that you met there you know their stories and, and their role and how that shifted your thinking as well yeah I mean you know one of the things that I really found powerful is that women almost refuse to remain victims you know, they have horrible, tragic things that happen to them, but they really do move on to become not only survivors, but become active citizens. I mean, so many of the women that I met, the stories that they had that would have broken, you know, broken the strongest of men, let alone the strongest of people. Um, and it's not just the physical war. Like when I think about women of Iraq under sanctions, like they almost reached mythical heights to make their family work. I mean, you're talking about a time where cake was illegal and they would find a way to make their child that birthday cake or make their daughter that wedding cake. I mean, you know, it sounds simple and it sounds almost trivial, but that type of thing was so powerful that no matter what happens, we will continue to live. And that, I think, is one of the most powerful messages. This is uh, totally incredible because it shows us it doesn't matter how different your culture is, where you come from, who you are, we all want the same thing at Absolutely. the end of the day Absolutely. for ourselves and for our families. Amazing conversation with Manal Omar. It continues next right here on the Life Beats on Pulse 95. This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats, Life Beats. with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. 95. Manal Omar is here and we are uh, talking all things identity. We are talking peace building and war zones as well. And, and we just left off uh, just now, uh, Manal, uh, talking about some of your experiences in places like Iraq. You have unbelievable uh, moments uh, that you've been part of, you know, in places like Sudan and, and I'd love for you to tell the story about the, the we don't even it's very hard for us to comprehend the way that some people have to live hmm. and what 
how resilient they can be in the face of trauma mm. and adversity. Just give us a little bit more of a taste of, of what that is like. Yeah, I mean, I was saying that because of um, my work, like the small things like electricity, water, roads, um, safety and security. I mean, you know, you really begin to value these things beyond anything, um, any words or anything that you can you can say. And and it's not in the way of, you know, like the old days of like, you know, they're starving, you know, children in Africa type of way. It's just this reality of understanding that there's so much abundance in this world. But because of the way we operate, we have lived in so much pain and scarcity and for me that really was the fuel to what really made me want to be like no it doesn't have to be this way uh, and, and there is a way of changing it now my goal is to change it from a place of again joy and and transformation that that includes pleasure not this pain and suffering that we have and and part of it is because I've had my own traumas uh, you know one of the things I did with the across red lines curriculum was go to Harvard Medical School to understand the neuroscience of trauma because I realized how much it ended up you know, impacting me. I mean, 20 years in wars, you know, I've had friends killed. I've had friends kidnapped. I've, you know, seen humanity at its worst in terms of what we can actually do and unleash on one another. The sexual violence is a weapon of war that I've unfortunately had to witness, had to work with a lot of women who had been targeted. Um, and so, you know, it puts you in this really dark place. And it's one of the things that, again, going back to prevention, is if we actually can get ahead of the conflict curve and work on women, we can prevent so much of this. And even on the personal level, I mean, you know, I've had two divorces. I've had five back surgeries. I've had so much, you know, trauma on on as a reaction to refusing to process all that I had seen. And what ended up happening is it broke me down to a point where I was so burnt out. I had to turn inward. And when I turned inward, I realized how much I could prevent um, especially because, you know, after a while, and I think this is true for a lot of people who do this work, whether it's conflict zones or humanitarian work, you know, the term is called wounded healers. Like we have our own wound. And if you don't deal with your wound, you actually end up unleashing it and creating harm when you think you're helping. And so I really had to turn inward. I had to see that I had a little bit, and I tie this a little bit to my American culture, but I did have a savior complex. I did have, you know, that cowboy mentality. Um, I definitely had survivor's guilt. You know, when you know women who've been shot at their doorstep, when you know women who've gone and their families call you saying, what happened? Why didn't she come home? You know, I, I remember one friend who died in Iraq, Fern. I, I think of her every day. And it's, you know, you know, the hardest thing is when her sister called and it's like, what is this country, Iraq, that killed my sister? And Fern loved Iraq. And, you know, Ambassador Chris Stevens in Libya is another example. I had the privilege of working with him. And he was an Arabist. He spoke fluent Arabic. The Libyans loved him. And you know, for his family to think that these are the people who killed him, like it, it's not what it is. And so for me, I, I really want to flip the narrative where we can go back to, to you know, we're greater than these wars. And and this is part of the reason why you wrote your book, Barefoot in Bardin. Tell us about that. Absolutely. I mean, I really, I wanted to write it, you know, I, I wrote it as a summer read, a beach read. You know, I didn't write the academic or foreign policy, which is generally what I write, because I wanted people to really see the faces behind war. You know, at one point, the headlines were 100 people die in Baghdad, 100 people die in Baghdad. And that's the only time we hear about Iraq. We became so desensitized to it. And Iraq is the hub. Again, you know, Shara al-Mutanabi, like the food, the culture, the art, the poetry. You see it on every corner. You you cannot, even now, in the midst of it, you see it. 
Um, and, and, you know, I, and I feel the same way about Afghanistan and I feel the same way about Libya. Like these countries are rich. They're amazing. They're beautiful. You know, I love Nigeria, the culture, you know, across and each city is a whole, you know, fantasy of its own in terms of Abuja and Lagos. And like these countries are just minimized to the tragedies. And, you know, think of yourself as an individual. Do you want to be minimized to your tragedies? Because you definitely have them. You have your hard times, but you're you're much more than that. And I think that's the real element, especially for women of war we're, they're much more much more than the victims and and my big lesson and my big message is nobody needs saving they need support they need listening to they need tools but they don't need saving most people who live in any difficult situation know their solution they just either don't have the support the resources or the power to do something about it and this is why you created across red lines tell us a bit more about that how that came about and what it is really yeah absolutely i mean across red lines really goes on the theory that if you want to have a peaceful, inclusive society, that you have to have women at the table and not just present in seats, but actually involved in decision making from the design phase. And so for me, it's not just any woman. Because you have to have a well-integrated woman who knows her own central power, what I call the life force energy, who has access to her own body. Because if you just start putting women in seats, one, you can do a disservice and set them up for failure. And I've seen that happen to some of the you know best women. You put them in these high-level seats without the proper training, without the proper support, and then suddenly they don't do well. And everyone's like, well, this is what happens when you put in a woman. It's just and trying to fill a quota without absolutely. any actual preparation. Yep, absolutely. And the other pit fall is we'll begin to adopt the masculine style of leadership. And sometimes, you know, I I love this one poet that says, you know, men are so lazy, they have women hold patriarchy up for them. Wow, And I think there's a lot of truth in it. Like we as women um, to succeed, we may find our voice in the male world, but then we lose our own feminine voice. Mm. And that's just too hard of a price to pay. And also the world doesn't need more masculinity. It needs that feminine energy to come back. And that's really what Across Red Lines tries to do. Why, though? Why is it important to have women at the table? Well, women are just it's a very different style. Um, Women tend to be more horizontal in terms of how they handle leadership, whereas men tend to be more hierarchical. Um, Women tend to more consultation, whereas men will be very unilateral in their decision. Um, Women have the pulse on society. I mean, you know, I I can't tell you how many times women, women know every child in their neighborhood. So if you have children coming in from, you know, foreign areas or what we, at one point we were, you know, really concerned about all the foreign fighters in, in various conflicts, um, women will tell you, you know, women know what's happening around the borders. They know who's coming in and out. They know the routes um, in almost every conflict zone, you know, especially when you look at, you know, countries like, Dar, you know, Sudan with Darfur or South Sudan or I think, you know, women are the ones who are going to get the water They're that, you know, they have a lot more access. And so, you know, women actually really have a lot to say. But again, their style is very different than men. And that isn't to say we want to replace men. You know, we want to be side by side with men because that, you know, and I always say Islam is an integrated approach, that combination of the masculine and the feminine energy, which we all have within ourselves as well. Mm. Um, So it's not about that physical form of male or female. It's about the energy that we bring in. Um, That's what actually leads to balance, uh, you know, and that's what leads to us going back to a place of abundance and not a place of scarcity. So interesting. Uh, We need to come back and talk about this. Talk about uh, how 
do we actually bring in more women at the table to uh, achieve things like peace building, but also for our own personal power? How do we harness that as well? We're going to come back to that in just a moment and talk about as well why you look at this through a faith lens. And this is something that is really central Mm -hmm. uh, to what you do, Manal. Lots more coming up right here on Life Beats on Pulse95. This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats. Life Beats. With Sally Musa. Only on Pulse 95. How can we get more women at the table when it comes to leadership, when it comes to peace building as well? Manal Omar is here, the founder of uh, Cross Red Lines, uh, talking her story and her experience. How do we do that, Manal? We, it feels like something that uh, we hear about a lot at the moment, uh, bringing more women to the table, whether it be you know in business, uh, whether it be in leadership, but whether it be uh, as well you know in war zones when we're talking about peace building, how do we actually do that? How do we change attitudes so that that actually happens? I think one of the things that we um, need to do, I mean, I, I'm a firm believer in what's called a rights-based approach. You know, it's it's a woman's right. It, you know, it needs to happen. Um, you know, it's not that we need to make a case for it. But the reality is in this day and age when we are operated by interests, I do think demonstrating the interest for the society is an important element of it. Uh, so that's a lot of what I try to do is actually show the statistics behind women's involvement. Um, I mean, it's, it's very obvious, but, you know, now the numbers just really prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Like, you're not going to get economic growth. You're not going to get an art and cultural revolution. You're not going to get new scientific innovations. You're, not, you're just none of that's going to happen if you're ignoring more than 50% of the population. And again, it's a different type of energy. And that's why I created Across Red Lines. It's not just about having women in seats. It's about allowing them to access their full feminine leadership style to create positive change. And, and what does that mean exactly? So, I mean, basically, there's a very different style between the masculine and the feminine. Um, And like I said, you know, the masculine tends to be just much more direct. I mean, think of kind of like that lightning um, and and you need it and you need that kind of directness. And the way I like to describe women is, you know, our energy tends to be more of the container. And so, you know, if that lightning is striking and it's not contained and harnessed, then it's useless. And so that combination of that, you know, bolt and that container really is what creates harmony and what creates change. It's like knowing what to do with it. It's it's exactly. And part of it is it will naturally organically happen. What's happened is we've just, um, you know, it goes back to what I was saying before is we've been taught to put on masks. We've been taught, taught to be, pub, you know, something different publicly than we are privately. You know, authenticity is going to be a form of currency in the future. You know, the, especially this young movement, they're not dealing with the posers and with the systems that we've created. They want to see authentic systems that represent them. And I think that's what where that harmony between the masculine and the feminine, even internally within yourself, is so essential. Mm. And you talk about this from a faith lens. What does that mean? You obviously are somebody who's a a very strong believer and a a Muslim, and you're very proud of that. Mm -hmm. But how does that play into the whole conversation here as well? So, I mean, I really believe that faith is important. It's what we call in, um, you know, what we call moral authority. You know, you have the government, you have laws, but then you also have something that's moral authority. And faith tends to be a crucial element of moral authority. You know, I've had a lot of women refuse to do things because they believe it contradicts their faith, not because anyone's forcing them. 
Um, I would definitely be that woman at one point in time when I thought if something was to contradict what I believe to be Islamic values versus, um, you know, law or anything, I would I would pretty much always choose Islamic values. And from that lens, I felt it was very important to really allow women to have access um, to the what I would call the real text, you know, not just patriarchal or male interpretation. What does Islam actually say? What did the prophet actually say? Um, and that, I think, is an essential element of empowerment. But the other angle, too, is is women of faith generally, not just Muslim women. I work with a lot of women of faith. We fall in between the cracks. You know, the secular feminist movements really don't see us. Uh, if they do, they see us as people who need saving. Um, if they listen to us, they tend to find the margins in the most extreme cases. Um, so they're not really, really listening to us. Uh, and then you look at the religious institutions and, you know, they're not the most friendly to women either, if we're honest, and especially the institutional religion. So, you know, women of faith tend to fall between the cracks and we tend to really feel alone in our struggle. And that's why I wanted to focus specifically specifically on women of faith. Um, that said, you know, the the retreat that I just ran last month in Al-Ain, um, a lot of women who would consider themselves secular attended. And when I asked them why, they said that they're also curious about the faith perspective. And of course, obviously, some of the skills that I have to share. What's interesting is uh, you're talking about this, but if we look back into our Muslim history and uh, you know, the time of the Prophet, there were so many powerful female examples all around him and not just that he encouraged them absolutely Absolutely. and we've lost that absolutely i mean you know and i consider islam to be a a revolution for women i mean we know this we know that you know women just recently you know women's suffrage is 100 years in the west we've had the right to vote 1400 years ago you know our inheritance laws you know our rights around our bodies is unbelievable Um, but also all the firsts in islam were a woman the first person to enter Islam was a woman, Sayyidina Khadijah. The wealth of, I mean, the um, you know message of Islam would not have been spread without her wealth. The first martyr in Islam was a woman. When the tribes compiled the Quran, they didn't give it to a man, understanding that it would be abused. They gave it to a woman. It was Hafsa that was given the Quran. The first Sufi saint, the world who brought mysticism to Islam, you Rabia. Know, Rabia from Al Basra, you know, was a woman. And so I think that there was a wisdom in starting so strongly in the feminine with a knowledge that it would be lost. Every tradition loses it. I don't think it's only the Islamic tradition. I think within Christianity, within Judaism, within Hinduism, there's a very strong feminine character that's been lost. And so there was an understanding that it would be lost so that we would find our way back. Um, you know, you know, and it's not just Muslim women. The Quran praises, you know, the Queen Balqis, which is pre-Islamic for her consultation, for her shura. She's the one who introduced shura to Islam. And so, you know, from that angle, you know, it, it's not just... You know, the line I always use is it's not nice to talk about women. It's necessary if you really want to have progress. Absolutely. Uh, And and the Prophet Muhammad was uh, amongst the first kind of to to really say that and to really put it out there. Um, And I love what you talk about. I love that you're so passionate about it and and, um, re-engaging us with our past once again, our powerful past, Mm -hmm. um, and using that as an inspiration to move forward here and now. But I want to come back to the here and now and, and kind of, you know, talk about, I feel like, you know, 
know, no, wherever you look, there's a lot of divisiveness. We live in a very divisive world at the moment. Uh, how do we kind of come back to that? How do we bring uh, back those voices, you know, the Muslim voices, the Arab voices as well, and, and make them prominent and powerful again? And to have the confidence that you have, you have incredible confidence in, in, that, in that way uh, through your years of experience as well. But, but how do we do that? How do we come together once again, celebrating our differences, but also recognizing how similar we are, too? Mm-hmm. Oh, God, I love all your questions. <laughs> <laughs> I would say um, one of the key elements is, you know, we're living in a time where the macro is too overwhelming. That big picture will throw you into despair. And, you know, that's what happened to me. That's why I think I burnt out. I I remember the moment I was in Gaziantep on the border of Syria. And I remember the moment being like, this is going to break me. I have to stop. And so, you know, that macro was too much. Now, I'm definitely, you know, um, someone who's not willing to completely give up. And so I shifted strategies and I went to the micro. That's why I do, you know, kind of a woman to woman, the leadership and kind of preparing the women is is really. And I think that's where we need to go back to the person to person, the people to people contact where we really try and see. And it's you know even start, starting within our own families, we're polarized even within our families, you know, so really trying to connect on the most personal level. I think is one of the elements that will really begin to reshift towards where we're we're having more progress. And I think that's what I would like us to see more is how can we actually remember that going back to what we keep saying about Fitra, how do we see each of our authentic beings and not just see Iraqi, Syrian, Afghan and like these labels that we're forcing on one another, Um, even in terms of pride, like, you know, I'm I'm a Palestinian, we're very proud people. But, you know, I I make sure to work on other conflicts and work on other issues because if we lose compassion and empathy for the overall humanity, that's when we really lose the game. Yeah, uh, absolutely. We could go on and on. It's just been an incredible conversation, a fascinating discussion with you, Manal. Mm. And I have a feeling it's not going to be the last. Yay. I feel like we need to have you on again. Uh, there's a lot more that we do need to uh, talk about. But um, I would love that. Just uh, amazing. Thank you so much, Manal Omar. I'm just going to put out one final question to you um, because you are, of course, yourself an author. You've written Barefoot in Baghdad um, and, and books are, are, are so important to us here in charge at the moment. Any authors, any books that stand out for you that have um, really had an impact on you over the years? Oh, yes. I mean, uh, I would say Amin Metluf is one of my favorite, favorite authors. I know I can't pronounce his name, but that's no, one it's of a, my... Exactly. Yeah. I mean, Metluf, yeah. Just, and, and, and ironically for our conversation, his you know book on identity, I think, is a must read. Um, so I'm a huge fan. Of course, I love Najib Mahfouz, uh, Milan Kundura. I mean, you know, all those authors, I think, were, were just very powerful in trying to get into the spiritual side of humanity, which I think is missing now. We're so stuck on the physical elements that we've lost our spirit. So I love so, those authors. So vital. So vital. I love that too. This is Pulse 95. Tune in live every weekday from 10 a.m.